welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, remember the Ever Given? Yeah, that was a, that was a great story. It's not over yet, is it? So possibly my favorite sort of finance eco story of all time. It's still going. Uh, so there's still this legal thing over what's going to happen to all the actual things that were on the Ever Given after it was stuck in the canal. And people are still trying to clear the backlog of container ships, the sort of logjam that came from the blockage, you know, months at this point after the thing was actually stuck. Right. So it wasn't actually uh, stuck, like sort of blocking the canal for that long. I think it was like about a week, maybe, or yeah. uh, something around that. But it caused all kinds of issues, obviously, and they had to have this huge rescue effort, and that cost all kinds of money. And then the last I heard about it, I don't know, I probably read an article like a week or two ago, there was some sort of like uh, some issue with like the boat, the vessel not being allowed to actually continue on its journey until the owners paid up uh, for the the uh, rescue operation. And then I sort of lost track of it after that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And of course, the Ever Given, it's sort of, I guess, symbolic of all these logistics snarls that we've had recently during the coronavirus crisis. And you know, we talked about it before in various episodes. We've talked about basically the surging traffic and shipping container rates going up. But we've also talked about this idea that there's a shortage of lots of different things, including lumber, including semiconductors. And the logistics snarls really play into that, because if you already have a shortage of things like semiconductors, plus you can't actually move them to where they need to be, then everything just gets compounded. Right. I was just about to use that word compounding because that's really what it feels like. That like the ever given story was like kind of wild. The ship like got turned and went into the bank. And that was kind of weird. But it really was sort of like the perfect emblem of this moment because there are just so many issues. We recently did that episode about with the lumber trader. And yep. so then after that episode, I was like reading about or I was like following like one of the big sawmill companies. I read their earnings report. And they missed Joe, earnings. Joe, I read about this. Oh, you did? Joe, you read this from my post. Oh. Yes, you published oh. it. That was the thing about how... The sawmill company, yeah. Yeah, they couldn't get enough trucks. Yeah, money. Right. It should have been minting money, but it wasn't. Sorry. Yeah. Of course you beat because me Because they couldn't actually move the wood. Okay. So we're all on the same page. So anyway, all these things are piling up on top of each other and chips and trucks and boats. And it doesn't feel like we're getting any closer to some sort of equilibrium. Of course, you beat me to that story, Tracy. I don't know why I would have ever suggested otherwise. But look, what's really interesting. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I've been trying to ship something on a container from Hong Kong to L.A. for months now, and I cannot get room on a ship for love or money. So, you know, I've been trying to do this for the purposes of journalism slash science. So I personally know how bad it is. And the guest that we're about to speak to on Odd Lots is someone that I got in touch with to try to give me some logistics advice and figure out what was going on with my own container shipping woes. And he's really the perfect person to talk to about this, because not only is he the head of a tech platform for global logistics, so this is what he does day in and day out, but he also has about 40 containers still stuck on the Ever Given, so he can talk about that situation as well. Well, I'm really looking forward to this. I'm hoping to learn something, and hopefully you get some uh, some advice on uh, making your uh, making your shipment. <laughs> All right. 
Our guest for today is Ryan Peterson. He's the CEO of Flexport. Ryan, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, great to have, great to be here. Thank you for having me. So Ryan, hopefully Joe and I kind of described um, the extremity of the logistics logjam correctly in the intro. How bad is it right now? Um, well, it depends where you sit. If you if you own a ship or an airplane or a fleet of those, you're making a lot of money right now. Prices have gone through the roof. The reason is because people are shipping more things than ever before in human history, and all the ships and planes are full. Um, but all the companies in every industry, I think lumber, the lumber one you described is super interesting, but everybody's having trouble getting anything delivered. And it's not just you with your little container. It's some of the best companies in the world are struggling right now. So my little container is 20 feet long for the record, but it only has one thing in it. <laughs> How does a Flexport sit within the uh, logistics ecosystem and who are your clients and all this? Yeah, so we work with uh, about 6,000 great companies around the world that regularly ship. We actually have more than 10,000 customers, but 6,000 of them are shipping constantly, like every day, like medium-sized, big, big companies, household names, some, some of the most important brands in the world, as well as like we have almost all of the direct-to-consumer e-commerce businesses oh, nice. that are uh, these up-and-coming companies. So we have all of those as customers. They contract Flexport to manage the full end-to-end -end from shipping everything once it leaves a factory loading dock all the way into their downstream network for distribution into the US. And we handle air, ocean freight, uh, customs, and the delivery, both pickup and delivery for trucking. So talk to us a little bit about the containers on the Ever Given then. What was your role there in the logistics chain? And what's their current status? Yeah, we do have, we have 43 containers sitting on that ship still. That's our European customer base, obviously. They contracted us to ship containers out of, mostly out of those ones left from China. Uh, you've, seen, you've seen the pictures of the ship. They're stuck. The name of the game here is second order effects. Like you just couldn't predict what was going to happen. So you've got the 43 that are stuck on that ship, but actually 120 other ships containing 1,200 Flexport containers were stuck behind that ship or ahead of it, depending on which way they're going. Uh, and also couldn't be delivered and had to get delayed. And that's the biggest cost that's going to come about through litigation and everything else that flows through here is all of these people feel like, hey, you owe me money. You blocked my delivery. And all of that, that's going to be a lot of lawsuits. It's not just the cost of the rescue operation, the, dr the dredging of the canal and everything else. It's like all these people had their cargo delayed. And what's the, how do you quantify that? It's like, is it the lost profits that they would have made? From delivering those goods, it starts to be a really hard exercise that will get settled in a court of law uh, or sort or many, um, and it's going to take a long time to to shake out. I don't know if there's like client confidentiality, but can you tell us some of the items that are stuck on the uh, what types of items are stuck on that boat? Yeah, there is a lot of confidentiality, but I know that one of our customers has um, is a relatively famous company that make and I can't show their sure. name, but I make uh, keyboard keyboards and mice. Uh, entire oh wow, like many container loads of that. Um, of the by the way, of the forty three containers we have, all of the customers except for three opted into cargo insurance, oh. which will cover the damages in the eventual lawsuits that come out of this. Those three, we're going to have to work through and make sure it doesn't bankrupt them. But one of the little known facts about global shipping is under ancient maritime law, the company shipping the cargo, not the owner of the ship, but the company that, whose cargo owns the cargo, the products on there is liable when something really? like this happens. 
Yeah, and and the reason that's a law called general average. It's a fascinating Wikipedia article, and the reason that that's true under ancient sort of not, I mean, ancient. Yeah, it goes back I think hundreds of years. The reason that that was true is that in a in a storm or an accident at sea, you don't want people to stop and argue about whose cargo they're going to throw overboard. Oh. And you want the mariner, you don't want these arguments. You don't want the mariners like worrying about that. Just throw the cargo over and huh. save the ship is the principle. And you'll sort it out later. And the way you sort it out later is everybody agrees that we will share oh. equally in whoever's cargo got thrown over. The rest of the people will make them whole. And that's a principle called general average. And the ocean carrier under the law has the right to invoke general average and declare it. And say, okay, and so that's what Evergreen has done. They have declared general average, which means all of the customers who have cargo on that ship are going to be liable for the damages that come through. Um, And it could be billions of dollars in aggregate, and and it gets divided pro rata based on the commercial invoice value of your goods. That when you do get this, your goods put on that ship, you should pay for cargo insurance because if that yeah. the ship gets something terrible happens, all of a sudden your little Bloomberg research project could, you know, bring you bring your yeah, whole. Yeah, Tracy, uh, you got to uh, make sure that you don't get uh, bankrupted. Oh man, that's actually a really good point. And now I'm worried about like bringing all of Bloomberg down with this one shipment. All it's right, it's not that expensive. But- This is actually something that I wanted to ask you about. So I'm hoping you can expound on that point. Who is actually liable for the snarls that we're getting in global shipping traffic? Like when stuff goes wrong, who bears responsibility? Not just in terms of, I guess, insurance for lost or delayed cargo, but also who bears responsibility for solving the problem? Like Who do your clients go to and say, I can't get my stuff shipped on time. Someone needs to fix this. Um, That's on us as a a logistics industry that it's really tough. The analogy I've been using with my teams is that we're we're doing wedding planning outdoors. And all of a sudden we've been moved to Seattle, you know, and it's like, well, every you better be warning your customers about what's going on. Tell them that, hey, we're we're not able Like 30 percent of ships are being are not making their schedule right now. 37% 37% of containers are getting rolled, which is like what it calls when you get bumped in an airline, uh, when you, get, when you b- get bumped to the next plane, that's kind of getting rolled in ocean container shipping. 37% industry standard, industry average before the pandemic was 8%. So it's wow. just like a huge spike in, in failure, service delivery failure. And it's a ton of second order effects because right when, when that, and the, the Suez, the Ever Given is a really good example. Like, that ship, okay, it's six days late. The ships behind it were six days late. I mean, the Ever Given is going to be months late, but the ones behind it were six days late arriving. But now they were supposed to go to the next port and the next port, and they're going to be delayed there and there. And all those other bookings that were supposed to get put on get rolled and have to find a new, you know, what, what ship do they go on? It's a mad scramble. That was just like adding, you know, insult to injury after a year of this, well, at least six months of really excess capacity and not enough ships to move all the cargo that's trying to move. So yeah, explain that. Like, ever given aside, what have been the main factors that explain why the the system is basically buckling? Like, wh- where are the big pain points coming from? The, the first thing and the most, the easiest thing to point to is just like way more demand, way more volume is being shipped. And 
my own working hypothesis for this, and I didn't predict this in advance, so I'm not claiming to be smart. And I just sort of looked at the data ex post and rationalized it, which we're all capable of doing. I don't know if it's true or not, but ex post, we can look backwards and say, well, all of these consumers who got locked in their homes and couldn't go out, you got to get your dopamine somewhere. And so you just buy stuff on the internet and, and people have bought way more things than they were buying before. And you've had this like big shift and the data does bear this out. You've had a big shift from right. services, which are way down, double digit percent down onto durable goods, onto home goods, upgrading your furniture, building. Um, and so that's, that's the first thing. It's just like way more cargo getting shipped. And you have the same number of ships, in some cases less because of actually the ocean carriers cut back. We all predicted as an industry and as a world, as like economists around the world, everyone predicted that goods purchases right. would fall off a cliff. And the opposite happened, which I think is a lesson that we should all take from this is like, maybe don't be so certain in predictions of the future. But we all predicted that and ocean carriers actually pulled back capacity. Um, a lot of companies pulled back orders and their factories made other plans. And then all of a sudden get new orders. So you've got a log jam at the factory where right now it's taking, I, I talked to one bicycle producer, a pretty big brand last two weeks ago. And it's taken them 300 days when they place a purchase order with their factory, 300 days before it's ready to get picked up, which normally this is like a 30 day process. Um, so you've got delays at the factory. The ships, there wasn't enough capacity. Well, we also ran out of containers. And this is a really interesting second order effect. Imports have surged. US exports right. are down like 20% of containers. If you don't have containers being exported, you don't have empty containers to put those imports in coming back. And it needs to run in a loop. So normal days, pre-pandemic, 60% of U.S. of containers leaving the United States yeah. are empty. Uh, it's, it's running around 80% right now. But for a while, they didn't, the ocean carriers weren't on top of this and just shipping back extra empties to make sure that they have enough capacity. So there was a moment a couple of months ago where we were, as, a, as an industry, as a society, 500,000 shipping containers short in China. Sorry, sorry. Can you just explain that? Why is the shipment back of empty containers a problem? Because normally you have ex you have full stuff going. Yeah. But U.S. exports fell off a cliff. Right. And nobody thought, hey, I still need the container, even if I'm not exporting the goods. Oh, so the ships were going back to China, but leaving empty containers. In the, the empties US. were staying here because oh, they would get imported and usually it. they get exported automatically. And that's like yeah. a, just a really quick reaction. You know, the industry is not made oh. to like change this fast This physical goods type of stuff happening in the real world. It's not software. Can you go into that in detail? Because this is something that we spoke about with a previous guest on shipping, but how flexible is the industry? I get the sense that it isn't very, and you're dealing with, you know, massive ships and huge ports that take a lot of coordination and big lead times. But why can't it respond to, you know, at this point, it's a change in the world that's sort of been going on for more than a year. So why does it take so long to respond to it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, my personal obsession is to try to make this industry more agile and and bring technology to bear. And a lot of it is a lack of technology. A lot of these companies are running old systems. I've heard the word AS400 more times than I ever want to hear again in my life. That's like an, uh, an operating system built by IBM as a predecessor to OS2. Like we're talking about early, nice. early 80s technology that's still running. And, and it's hard to switch out a system that runs such vital systems and you're, you know, it's running your company. 
And so some of it is technology and lack of tech to be agile. Some is process, I don't know, like I said, some bureaucracy. So for example, with these empty containers, we saw this problem coming. Like six months ago, we we're like, hey, the exports aren't happening. There's going to be a, a, a lack of imp, uh, empty containers in China. We went to a, a couple of ocean carrier partners of ours and said, we want to ship empty containers. We'll pay you to ship them. We want to make sure we have empties available. And they told us, sure. But once it arrives there, we're taking it back and it's our container. And we're like, OK, well, I'm not going to pay you to ship an empty. <laughs> like, I would, So we didn't do it. And then fast forward a couple of months and they didn't have any empties. We're like, ah, we were offering to pay you to do this and you'd be making more money right now. So some of it is just like, hey, how do you get older companies to be less bureaucratic and be agile and respond to change, which is like not something they've really had to learn. I think we've seen this with a lot of institutions. I don't need to just pick on any particular industry. We've seen this with healthcare distribution. We've seen it uh, across the board. And the pandemic has really exposed a lot of our institutions. And, and I think it's a wake-up call. These are not stupid people. They're like, oh, wow, okay, we really have to invest and upgrade our technology systems. And we're seeing um, good partnership there. But in the midst of a pandemic, it's hard and, and mistakes are made for sure. The companies that you work with, obviously, I assume in normal times, there's already complicated stuff. But, you know, like what's sort of going on inside at the corporate level as they sort of have to, like, pivot to this kind of thing that I don't know, maybe I don't know if it normally runs an autopilot, but it's sort of smooth to this becoming a major strategic focus for their ability to conduct business. We're talking about brands like companies that need to get yeah. their products in stock. And yeah, it is. The logistics team has been. I sometimes call it like the offensive lineman of business. Like you don't really get noticed until you commit a penalty and then everybody, right. everybody's pissed off at you. And the rest of the time you're just, yeah, yeah, he blocks somebody. That's his job. Um, and I think we're finally seeing the opportunity for, for these people, these teams to become much more strategic and get a seat at the table and talk with the CFO, talk with the head of marketing and sales and the e-commerce team about, hey, where's the stuff? I mean, the dirty little secret is that the best brands in the world have no idea where their products are. And that's in normal times. Hmm. And now, really, they have no idea where it is or when it's going to get there. And it's all the previous models have stopped working. Um, and they need, they need technology. They need answers that can show them, hey, show me on a satellite where this ship is and show me use machine learning to predict when is it actually going to clear customs and get delivered to me so I can communicate that downstream to the end consumer all the way to the end consumer. Who cares? When's their... When's their couch going to arrive? Um, and that's an age-old problem. No one can tell you when your couch is going to arrive, but it's been compounded in the last couple of months. And we're trying to at least be able to give people visibility, even if you can't run it faster and I can't make right. the ships not be stuck at the port waiting. But I can tell you what the estimated wait time is and I can tell you what current throughput levels at that port terminal are, et cetera. Uh, and that's, that's what the Flexport Technology Platform is built for. So we've, we've found this whole thing, You know, the silver lining in us is like we're all of a sudden, normally we just ship cardboard boxes uh, through our platform, and no one thinks it's that interesting. All of a sudden, here I am talking to you all and trying to and talking to board levels and really getting in there and trying to solve real problems for people. So this actually leads to a question that I wanted to ask you as well. Can you talk to us a little bit about how the economics or the process of actually loading container ships work? So you just mentioned that you know you have technology and machine learning that help you estimate that process. It seems to be really complicated. And again, 
I'm speaking a little bit from personal experience here, but I keep getting rolled from ship to ship to ship, which means there's someone else who is taking my space the, the sh- on the ship that I was supposed to get. And hmm. either they're paying higher rates or, I don't know, maybe they're a bigger client for the company. But explain exactly how that works. Who gets preference on these extremely crowded ships? Yeah. And I'll tell you the way it's worked traditionally in the industry. And then I'll tell you what, where I think innovations up, there are opportunities are for innovation um, on top of that. It's like traditionally it works by who has the best relationship with this person, probably named Lars sitting in Copenhagen or something who's making these decisions. <laughs> uh, and it is like pretty human driven. They're going to look at factors like how long have you been a customer? Do you ship a lot with them? How much money are you paying them, obviously, and things like that. But they're not really they don't have a lot of systems to try to build this in terms of actual algorithms. It's people kind of horse trading and, and, and communicating by email and prioritizing things. So a lot of favor trading and taking care of people. I, in fact, I have a, an employee of mine who used to work at a, another company in this industry. And he said that he spent seven years trying to sell this like household name, this retailer. And they finally c- agreed to give him 20 containers. And the Cause the comp and they paid extra to make sure that they got loaded. And then his company just rolled all 20 containers. And after seven years of work trying to close this account, he just lost it on the first day. And it was just like disaster. Huh. It was just a lack of systems. Everybody wanted to support him, but there was no place to like star that those containers and be like, we need to prioritize these. Look, at some point, if the ship is full, you do have to decide who gets on and who doesn't. And what we're building towards is a world where you prioritize people based on their own past reliability of because it goes two ways in that 30% of all ocean containers that are booked with carriers get canceled. And that was pre pandemic numbers. And so the reason that you have an 8% roll rate in a world where ships were only at 90% capacity or so before the pandemic. So how are you at 108%? Well, they have to overbook. Uh. If you have a 70% book to show ratio or a 30% cancellation ratio, you're going to, you can't, you can't make money selling a 70% full ship. So you overbook your container ship and then people cancel on you and you sort it out. And on the average, people are getting rolled. So it's kind of like a, fl- a commercial flight that way, a pass where they might over, they just assume some people aren't going to show up. And then if everyone does show up, then they have to bump. It's exactly like that. But the airline industry on the passenger side has like been really yeah. early adopters of technology and computer, you know, and, and data right, science right. and They've done pretty, I mean, I don't get bumped very, like almost ever. I right. don't hear those announcements on the loudspeakers anymore. Wait, so is it book to show? Is that like a term that you guys Yeah, use? book to show. is It's the opposite of cancellation. So we learned in terms of like, book to show, what was the other one? General? General average, your roll rate. I've already learned, if we stopped right here, I would have already learned plenty. I haven't that. even gotten into all the Viking English that still predominates in global trade. There's a lot of, there's- Oh, a, tell <laughs> us some, tell us some. The, the word for chucking is called drayage which is, I guess, to, is that an old word for dragging something? Like when you had horses oh, dragging, wow. uh, you have a bill of lading. Yeah. Uh, well, that lading is an old English word for loading. Um, and the bill of, of lading, course. this is to show you how ancient this industry is like, the bill of lading is a, is a piece of paper that serves as title to the merchandise. By default in global trade in this 2021 today, by default, that piece of paper needs to be flown across the ocean to be given to the new owner. So your container's going along slowly like this, your piece of paper gets flown around and then you need to present that at the port to be able to pick up your container. It's not, it's crazy. 
I just realized I've been pronouncing all of these words wrong in my head. I always thought it was bill of lading and dryage. So thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. <laughs> Look, if someone has to get rolled from your ship, yeah. you know, your ship is overbooked and you have to choose who gets rolled. You should be able to look at past performance and go, hey, look, give me your forecast of how much you're going to ship and what you ship. And, and then I'm going to look at how accurate you are in your forecast and how good you are at maintaining that book to show ratio that you actually ship what you booked. And then I will reward you when, when someone needs to get rolled. It won't be you. It'll be someone else who's way in, unpredictable. And I can give that person an opportunity to pay more to be treated like a more predictable client. And I think hmm. you can bring some sanity to this industry, which is like, and I, my, one of my dreams is to like send up the, the person who makes the, the company that makes the best forecast. I want to send them one of those big golf sweepstakes checks that they have to go yeah. and try to cash in. Cause no one, no one, the, the guy who makes the forecast in the back office of one of these companies, like really no one has ever recognized that person for doing anything. Like an industry award show is what you need. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that anyone would care, but I think their finance department would celebrate him for an after him or her for an afternoon. That leads to another thing, actually, that I wanted to ask you, and I'm sorry we have such a long list here, but can you talk a bit more about the situation at the ports and the actual unloading of containers? Because, you know, on the one end, it's difficult to get on a ship, and then at the other end, it seems to be difficult to actually get unloaded at your destination port. So what's going on there? Yeah, and, and similar problem. I mean, you have all the ships are sailing. All of them are sailing completely full. We still use like 1970s technology to unload these ships. I mean, we all like look at those containers and think they're kind of cool, but like that's a 1970s innovation and we still unload them one or maximum two at a time. So it takes you eight hours to unload a ship when it arrives. And that's if you have a full crew, full work crew, full group of longshoremen, um, stevedores, they're called the, the warehouse, the workers on the, um, at the port. Obviously COVID has had impacts on work on staffing and the union has told them I understand that they don't, if they don't feel safe, they cannot come to work. So they've had a lot of time getting enough people. These are brave people going to work throughout the pandemic. Um, and they have been hit pretty hard by COVID in these in various port terminals around the world. So they haven't been able to be fully staffed. And even when they are, it just takes so long to unload these ships that that's one backlog. Second is the truckers. And you need to be able to find a chassis. The chassis is like the trailer that you put a container onto that the, so that it can be dragged around by a truck. And we haven't had enough chassis, you know, all these second order effects that are really hard to predict, bullwhip effect, it's called in supply chain. Oh, yeah. One thing I noticed, so by the way, recording this May 3rd, so the, the latest ISM manufacturing reports came out and I was reading the ones for Europe this morning. And one of the things that it said was that manufacturers, we all know they're facing backlogs and delays and supply issues, and that because of the uncertainty about their ability to get supplies that they're increasing their orders. And so because they're compensating for uh, supply uncertainty by actually amping up their orders, because then presumably that they view that as increasing the chances that they're actually going to get. Uh, but then I have to imagine that that only further exacerbates the shortages, because if everybody is fear of shortages and everybody increases their orders, and then you actually sort of manifest shorter shortages. So I'm curious about how that sort of second order effect where the sort of the compensation for expected delays creates more problems. Yeah. And then what happens when you actually get all your order and you realize, oh, I ordered too much stuff, then you cancel and you cut all your orders back to zero and you, it's just all this vo volatility in the system. Yeah. 
And that is actually a lot of what happened. So because when we first started into the pandemic, a lot of almost every business was staring at the abyss and said, hey, we got to cut all of yeah. it. They didn't order anything. I mean, you probably heard that from your, I didn't get to listen yet to your lumber uh, podcast, but. Yeah, yeah, it was the same thing. They sold everything to the ground. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's had, that happened to a lot of industries. And then all of a sudden, and uh, the one that was the worst that I'm aware of was, well, I don't know, I don't know how to compare it with lumber, but the furniture industry had a really hard problem because as pr what's happened with price of ocean freight, it's gone through the roof, right? Because it's at capacity. Now it's whoever's willing to pay the most gets on the ship. And the furniture people will have like kind of low margins. We're sitting this out and they're going, Hey, I'm not going to ship when the price is that high. I'll just wait and I'll sell down my inventory in the U S oh, yeah. and so now all of a sudden they're going, wait a minute, I'm like out of inventory and I'm just going to have to pay this price. And so they're the furniture imports are only up 25% year over year, but volumes in Q1 are up 2x year over year because volumes had gone to zero in previous quarters. So you get these crazy huh. oscillations like that. And yeah, it can, it can lead to all these second order effects that are really hard to predict. I don't know. I, I, it's, it's hard to see how we get through this other than just time. It takes time to play it out and let things come back to what, I don't know if that there's a concept of equilibrium, but it's a, something along those lines. Here's a dumb question on that point, but do you see the logistics snarls as good or bad for the global economy? And maybe that's a weird question, but I, can kind of see people arguing it both ways. So on the one hand, if you know you're short now, then you're boosting orders. You kind of assume that there's going to be demand for the foreseeable future. And eventually people start adding capacity, which would be a good thing for the economy. But on the other hand, it does create this volatility as you just described. Um, people can't get things. There's a lot of uncertainty built into the system. And even if prices for, you know, say furniture or lumber are soaring, you can't actually deliver the goods and make money off of it. So net net, is this good or bad? I, I don't know. I, I don't know if there's a judgment, like a moral judgment or a good, bad judgment there, because it's, it's, it depends where you sit, you know? And, and like, I do think it's kind of good that we're shipping more stuff. That seems like a positive economic indicator that people are feeling comfortable. And right. If, if, if shipping had collapsed, we'd be having a different conversation about the great depression or something. So on that sense, it's good. Is it good that we shift spending from services onto goods? Like really hard for me to say, I don't, I don't have a judgment on that. Like I think enjoying life and having some nice experiences might be better than buying stuff. Right. Sometimes. So hopefully all those people, in service jobs, get a chance to get back to work. And, and that, you know, that it's kind of like you're just seeing this mix shift. Now, you will see it if it stays high long term. If like goods stay high, that seems good. And you will see assets, people will invest in ships. I'm sure people are doing it right now is if they had certainty that that was going to happen, they'd be placing orders for more ships. But it takes years for a new ship to come online once from the moment you order it. From where I sit, it's entertaining. I mean, I, I like to just see what happens in the world. And, and uh, it's also really challenging. We have to solve problems for our customers. So that part is what we live for. Like we, we're here to solve problems. So I don't think we, we're not complaining about it at Flexport. We become more useful than we were in the past. go back to the point you made about the uh, the furniture importers and the low margins that they have 
I mean, this was, again, very similar themes to our discussion about uh, lumber. But, you know, the, the sawmills were sort of shocked by didn't really believe that the lumber prices were going to stay high. So, like, no one really ever invested to increase the uh, capacity. How much are the issues? You know, we've just seen this steady worsening, worsening. Just today, I saw, you know, shipping rates on average hit a new high. How much has there been this effect of companies essentially thinking that, oh, it must be the peak, so I'll wait and I'll wait. And then, of course, and then having to scramble further to pay up more because they've delayed so long in their shipping. I, I think that's I think that's pretty common. And so right now, the, the world's ocean freight industry, about I think it's 60 or 70 percent of the world's ocean freight is contracted on an annual basis. OK. Versus spot market. Okay. Where they're signing like an annual rate and saying, hey, this is going to be, I'm going to pay this rate for the year. And they go and contract that with ocean carriers or with a freight forwarding company or, or a platform like Flexport. And right now is the season when that happens. It's like April and May is when these decisions get made, these contracts get negotiated. And so it is like the worst possible timing. And, and these companies are struggling to get capacity. And imagine being that logistics manager at a major corporation who you are told by every company you talk to, sorry, I can't give you capacity. Your company's not going to grow. You're not going to hit your sales goals. Like I can only ship half of what you want to ship. That is a really difficult position to be in. And yet it's a brand new position. So these companies a month ago might've been able to negotiate and get space, but they didn't want to pay the rates. And it's sort of a wake up call like, oh my goodness, I'm not going to get any space unless I pay the rates. Companies are sort of having that moment of, opening their eyes and going, okay, I guess we have to make a decision. Are we going to do this or not? In your experience, are companies absorbing the costs of higher shipping rates themselves, or are those costs getting passed on to consumers? I think it's going to get passed through by good companies. Good companies can raise their prices and and people will pay for the product if if, if that's... Because it's happening to all the competitors equally, right? So you're just going to see it come through in the form of more inflation. Are we going to see some of these like once I mean, some of these uh, DTC companies that were probably growing really fast and have huge demand face a situation which they could have grown really fast in 2020 or 2021, but their top line just didn't grow by that much because they just couldn't move product? I think you'll see that they still grew. I mean, sort of like the market has yeah. grown and that's what's happened, but, yeah. but you won't be able to see that, hey, they might've been able to grow even faster if they could have got more product to market. And some of them, the ones that are really good businesses with good margins are shifting to air or that really care about the customer experience and demand that growth and know they need to keep growing and need to get to the next level of their business. So they're, doing, they're, sw- they're shifting some capacity over to air freight and getting creative. You know, One of the things that you can do, you can pay more to guarantee your space on the ship. And it costs a couple thousand bucks extra, but guarantee it. And so you're seeing a lot of people, like pre-pandemic Flexport, about 11% of the containers that we shipped were on these premium products. And now it's, uh, I think it passed, it was 18% a couple of weeks ago. It's gotta be above 20% by now. We've been getting more and more demand for that. Yeah, this was an option that was offered to me, but Bloomberg's budget does not extend that far uh, to premium shipping rates. You mentioned air cargo just then. How nimble is that industry? Because I imagine, you know, maybe repurposing some old passenger planes is probably a lot easier than trying to source new ships. 50% of the world's air cargo flies in the belly of passenger planes, by the way, which is a horrifying thought for you as you leave Hong Kong to imagine what's down there. 
don't, don't think about it next time you're flying cafe. Those planes are all grounded, which is uh, to cut out 50% of capacity on the air side from the start of the pandemic. It hasn't come, basically hasn't come back online. So that's the first thing. We uh, experienced this firsthand. So last year, at the start of the p- pandemic, we recognized pretty early on that their hospitals didn't have enough PPE to get uh, enough masks for their frontline healthcare workers. And that was true all over the world. Um, and we, I just sort of, our Flexport team just stepped up and we actually uh, chartered 77 passenger planes and filled the cargo holds, but also the seats and the overhead compartments. We just stuffed masks everywhere. Um, ended up shipping about 500 million units of PPE, 425 million units of PPE uh, to, uh, to five continents of healthcare workers. So we were able to do it, but the break-even price um, was pretty high. So passenger planes only make money, I want to say above 10 bucks a kilo. And air freight prices are normally about, that's uh, Asia to US. Air freight prices are normally like four bucks a kilo. Uh, right now, they've gone back ab- up above ten. So we, we're in the range where you might see some passenger planes come back on and be used. They don't need to be fully retrofitted. Like that's a longer term thing, and I don't think the airline, the passenger airlines, are have, have reached that state very much yet. Um, old seven forty sevens are mostly going to end up keep flying uh, now that they've retired the seven forty seven. You'll see those live on as cargo planes for a long time, and they will get retrofitted, but uh, you can actually use them as a passenger plane and just ship cargo in the luggage holds and, and in the overhead compartments if you if you are so desperate as we were last year. What is the state of the trucking market right now and how much of a bottleneck or how much is uh, for your clients, how much are the sort of after get after the uh, the container is taken off the port and goes onto a truck, how jammed up is that? Yeah, and there's a, there's a few different trucking markets that are yeah. loosely related, but somewhat independent. And so our, the one that we play in is called drayage. Uh, that's ocean uh, port trucking, where you're hauling a container out of a port. Uh, and then okay. we call it cartage. I don't know where that term came from, old English, I'm sure. Uh, cartage is airport trucking, when you're picking up a, a, a shipment at an airport. Oh. Um, and th- that's where Flexport operates. And I have the most insight and expertise there, rather than yeah. full truckload domestic trucking, like point to point within the country. Or, or the other one is called less than truckload. You're shipping a pallet point to point. On the ocean trucking, you have seen definitely shortages of drivers and chassis. So that's the equipment shortage I mentioned a little earlier. Flexport has a big advantage. We've built technology for these truckers. So we have a suite that we've got about 140 trucking companies that run our software and mo- with a mobile app and a hardware device that plugs into the engine. And so about 35% of all the drayage trucks in America have Flexport software on them. And so we're able to get access to trucks and find the closest truck to the port and assign them a load, assign that driver a load. And we're, we're now doing it. 97% of our shipments, no human intervention. We just assign the load and the driver goes and picks it up. Um, so it's running fairly smoothly for us. But we've seen our, the trucking companies that come on board that use Flexport are struggling to get enough drivers. And, and that's a long-term trend. You've got a driver shortage. Turns out young people don't really want to drive trucks um, so the average age of truck drivers in this country keeps getting older and older every single year. So here's the big question. What's your instinct on how long this will actually go on for and what's going to eventually, hopefully, solve the problem? Well, I think this problem is going to get solved with vaccines and a return to normalcy is our best hope, is that people start spending money in bars and restaurants and hotels and travel plane tickets and don't have as much money to buy stuff online and buy goods. Um, 
that will sort of be that that's what a literal return to normalcy is used to our economy used to look more like that on what timeline does that happen it's your guess is much better than mine i don't know but are you seeing any easing yet uh no not really we're still seeing similar levels of ordering and and like to your point earlier like if i can't get my stuff maybe i should order twice as much stuff and um and you're seeing that kind of behavior more than more than a return to normalcy at some point, are people going to have massive inventories and then maybe they'll stop shipping things so much? That's possible. Yeah. And I think that's that's the downside of all of this is like we're all trying to predict the future and like we've just proven we're pretty bad at that. And so right now, everyone's predicting the future is going to look more like what we see today. And you just keep on ordering, ordering, ordering. And then at some point, your customers have shifted and they stopped buying your cool new products and they started spending money at the bar like they used to. And you're stuck with all this inventory. So yeah, that can, that's the bullwhip effect where it just uh, oscillates back and forth. Flexport is a technology company. And I feel like, you know, in, in normal times, everybody wants to, I assume, wants to optimize their inventory and having, you know, extra days of inventory that they're not selling is a liability. And you want to just, in the dream scenario, get the ship right, you know, a minute before you're going to sell it. Everything's just in time. And A, is that a fair characterization of how a lot of your clients operate? And B, is there a sort of a, a risk to this sort of like just-in-time thinking? Will there be a sort of rethink uh, post-pandemic, post-crisis about the costs of perfect optimization? And how are you thinking about when things normalize, whatever that means, change, will there be any changes to, uh, to behavior? Yeah. And, and it's got to be case by case, industry by industry, like some industries, sure, it, is, it is absurd to have no inventory of PPE in stock. Like that is almost sure. uh, like criminally negligent. It's like how we do, you know, we can't have life-saving equipment with no inventory. It'll be a decision for each company based on the margins and how much it costs them to sit on product. And is this product going bad, fashion, fast fashion? Like, is it going out of style in two weeks? Maybe you get, maybe you revisit, maybe it could last a month or something. I, I do think you're definitely going to see a reconciling there. And this is, a, by the way, a longer term trend It's like in the old world, when I grew up in, my mom bought all our clothes in the Sears catalog and you just have one distribution center in the middle of the country and you could provide a three week or seven day shipping time from one site. But if you want to get to an e-commerce world where it's two hour delivery, you got to have inventory cached, sort of the internet term would be edge caching. You're edge caching your inventory, keeping it close to the customer. And you got to have inventory in every single zip code almost. And that's a lot more inventory. So now you need to really be smart. Like how much inventory do I want? What's the value of that customer proposition I'm, of saying two hour versus two days versus two weeks versus two months. And that's the trade-off that every brand has to make is between the customer experience they want to create and the lost sales if they don't have goods in stock versus the cost of working capital. And these are old models. Like in business school, you'll see this model in an Excel operations class. You'll you'll. Most, most business school grads like saved that uh, Excel file and still have it from their professor. But no one's ever been really good at feeding real-time data into that model. And that's, that's what technology enables today is like we can show you what are actual lead times when you place the order with your factory. What's the actual transit time? Not like your fudge, your fudge factor 30-day number that you put in your Excel model, but like what are we seeing trailing 90 days? What's the distribution curve? Uh, data, data will help with these problems. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a trade-off that you have to make between growth and, and the cost of capital. So what should Tracy do to like get her, I don't even know what she's shipping, but 
Like, what is she doing wrong? I, I, I do think it's um, projecting yourself. You got to... You got to make that company that's trying to ship your cargo believe you're going to be like this important long-term customer that's going to be there for them in the future. Maybe maybe call the guys, call the team at Bloomberg that ships all your umbrellas and swag and everything. Maybe maybe oh, they yeah. got some hookups for you. And uh, all right, I'll I'll give it a go with with Lars and Copenhagen. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think they're, they they have to prioritize. And if and if I, I probably do the same thing. No offense to you, but. I, I gotta, I gotta, who's gonna be there for me next year and the year after if I'm, if I gotta choose which customer gets on the boat? There's like a sort of a two way exchange that goes on in these, in these negotiations of who gets on the boat and who doesn't. I can't believe my mostly empty container being shipped for the uh, purposes of stunt journalism is not a priority for these companies. <laughs> Amazing. All right. Well, Ryan, it was lovely talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ryan. That was great. Likewise. Thank you all. It was great to, great to chat. Joe, I love that conversation. So nice to be talking. You know, I like talking about markets and I like talking about economic and financial theory, but sometimes it's nice to talk about actual things and yeah. the way they move around the world. And I think I mentioned this before, but it kind of gets to one of my pet themes for the year, which is this idea that economics actually does a terrible job of incorporating and thinking about logistics. Yeah. And this is the year that's kind of proven that. But the other thing I liked in that conversation was Ryan's point that this whole problem started from expectations and an incorrect view of what the future actually turned out to be. And now we're trying to solve it with expectations yet again, ramping up inventories yeah. and orders. And the big yeah. question is whether or not it's actually going to materialize the way we think it is. You took the words right out of my mouth. And I think that's exactly right. Like everything is expectations. And everything, like, in so many conversations, like, expectations about the future end up affecting the right now. And uh, in all different kinds of ways, so whether it's expectations like, oh, shipping costs are going to come down, so we're going to, like, hold off, and then we have to pay more. Or even uh, Ryan's point is, like, well, maybe you'll get greater investment in shipping capacity, but only if there is the expectation that global shipping remains very high. And of course, as we talked about in um, Levinson and the sort of like the decline of uh, globalization, that leading to sh consolidation of capacity, like everything about expectations ends up having an effect right now. And I just think that's such a fascinating thing that sh turns up like over and over again in our conversation. And I got to say, the bonus of all these episodes about logistics and lumber and actual things is that we're really learning great new terms like uh, stumpage fees, bill of lading and drayage, which I always I said it before, but I always thought it was ladding and dryage. So the more you know. And the uh, general, what was it? I can't remember. General something liability. But actually, I need to look it up for this container. Now I'm worried. What was the one ship to show? Was that it? We're going to have to start uh, an all thoughts glossary, I think. No. Oh, yeah, it's a good idea. But also, I thought that was like super interesting, again, because it's like, you know, how much of these businesses, it's not just, you know, we think of like, oh, everything is just like a pure auction, right? It's like there's capacity and who pays the most. But of course, from the perspective of the shipper, like 
they want to reward their good customers and who's going to be the customer a year from now and who is the best ship to show, like who actually shows up, like all of these things that are beyond just like pure, uh, pure price, I guess I would say, end up uh, determining so many fascinating things. Again, it kind of gets back to expectations, right? Who do you expect yeah. will be a better customer over time? Totally. All right. Should we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Jill Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, Ryan Peterson. He's the CEO of Flexport. His handle on Twitter is at TypesFast. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening.